0: Okay, Matthew chapter 7, we in the last few weeks have been going through a discussion on the topic of forgiveness. Uh, I know as we talk through this topic and as we look at the biblical, I'm going to use a strong word, the biblical imperatives to forgive, um, that a discussion of this type will raise many difficult issues and questions. It will bring up a lot of memories from the past. Uh, if you need help in working through some of those kinds of issues. Say, Pastor Tim, through what I'm hearing in church, I'm being helped or I'm being prompted uh, to begin to deal with some issues that I haven't dealt with things in my past that have not been resolved. And I believe that God wants me to do something about that. And what I want to do is encourage you uh, to pray and to ask God by His Spirit to show you the specific steps that He would like you to take and seeking to find resolution to the issues that perhaps have been the cause of deep-seated resentment or bitterness or whatever kinds of ill feelings you're experiencing in your heart that toxic waste that is buried with not with the intention of having complications but the complications of burying toxic waste are inevitable one day the the barrel begins to decompose and the stuff inside begins to leak out and begins to affect its entire surroundings and so My hope as we have worked through these three sermons, this being the third and the last on this topic right now, although it's interesting to me that forgiveness is not far from any passage of scripture, Uh, whenever you're talking about Christ, that is available and uh, something that we can avail ourselves of. But as we go through it, just in review, these two thoughts, one is the conflict is normal. It's what we looked at the first week because I live in a fallen world, problems occur in that world. Uh, They are caused by me or I am the object of those problems. Somehow I get offended or wronged living in a fallen world. So it's, it's part of life. You're not odd if you're wrestling with conflict or with forgiveness. It's a normal struggle that all of us face. When they are resolved properly, we talked about last week, God will be glorified and most beautifully, the cross of Christ will be magnified. I mean, because that is the motive behind biblical or Christian forgiveness. It is We remember, you know what? I was forgiven for everything. For the sins that I have committed against the Creator, I was forgiven. Therefore, I should seek as best I can to forgive those who have trespassed against us. This morning, I just want to, as we start this discussion, put an accent on a topic that i think is critical in the bible and that is the topic of peace and unity in christian fellowship it is impossible to read through the gospels and not realize that jesus christ was deeply concerned about forgiveness that leads to unity and a sense of family in the body of christ he was passionate about it matthew chapter 7 contains three critical passages matthew 5 matthew 7 and matthew 18 three critical passages that contain somewhat detailed and extended teaching on how to get past the messes and wrongs that occur in the context of living in a fallen world. So Jesus was interested in something, and you find out what he was interested in when you get to John 17, when he's praying in his high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to being arrested and taken and crucified. He cries out to his father, praying that his disciples his followers the believers would become unified and would become one so that and here's his concern so that the world might know that you sent me isn't that fascinating jesus says father make them one keep all things out of their lives that will cause division make them one so that the world will know in in light of their incredible sense of unity and family you sent me to create that family See, Jesus' desire was that as people looked at how the church resolves conflicts, deals with heartache, deals with wrongs received, that a watching world would say there is something unique and distinct about them, and that which is unique and distinct about them has something to do with that cross work that they always sing and talk about. So that the world may know. Folks, when we resolve conflicts in church life, in our marriages as Christian people, with our kids, with our extended family, with our neighbors, when we are aggressive in pursuing reconciliation, the world does not understand it. And when they ask for a reason, why, why do you do that? The only reason we have is that Christ has forgiven us so much more. And that is what motivates us to live a life of unity in the context of a fallen world so that, Jesus said, the world watching you may know that there is something different in the heart of biblical Christians. So peace and unity are vital to the plan of Christ. Therefore, I think we can make this assumption. Satan will do everything he can to disrupt the peace and unity which exalts Jesus Christ. He will do everything he can. And I think one of the major footholds that he gains in the life of believers is found in Ephesians 4. If you let sin present, unconfessed, if you let issues of tension, anger unresolved fester in your life, you will give him a base of operation in your life and you will destroy the purpose for which Christ came. And that is so that the world around us might know about the love of Christ. Biblical love leaves no room for unresolved conflict. The passage that we launched into this discussion from, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love, which is Christ, does not keep a record of wrongs received. It doesn't hang on to them, coddle them, think on them, meditate on them. It doesn't do that. It seeks to find forgiveness and to put those things out of the way. Now, as we look this morning at a plan for overcoming wrongs or offenses that are received, I want to just lay out two thoughts as kind of a foundation. Okay, one is this. Some wrongs can be overlooked. Okay, some wrongs can be overlooked. Second thought is this. Some wrongs should not be overlooked. You say, Tim, is there a biblical imperative for overlooking some wrongs? Proverbs 19.11 says this. A man's wisdom gives him patience, and it is his glory to overlook an offense okay it is his glory to overlook an offense first peter 4 8 above all love each other deeply from the heart because love covers a multitude of sin now that text is a little bit more flexible okay love covers a multitude of sin that ultimately it will deal with a reconciliation kind of resolution to resolve the problem okay but sometimes there are incidental things that happen along the way that, you know what, it's just it's just—it's it, not going to have a long-term or lasting effect. How do we know when something cannot be overlooked? And I'm just going to give you two simple thoughts. One is this. If the offense is creating a wall or causing you to feel differently towards someone for more than a short period of time, okay, look, if my wife corrected me for every wrong thing I do, she'd be a very busy woman, okay? Sometimes you just Okay, no, you know, it's just, that's part of this. That's this. That's this. Okay, but if it starts to cause a wall that begins to arise in the relationship, and it brings division, that has lasting consequence. It has staying power. It should not be overlooked. Okay, so there are times when it is right to overlook and wrong, and there are times when it's not. When it raises a wall for more than a short period of time, or If the offense is doing harm, and I think this is so important, if the offense or the problem is hurting the reputation of God because we're his children, or of his church because we're the bride of Christ, it is too strong to overlook. Does that make sense? If it's damaging reputation of God or his church, or it's causing such severe disruption that reputation of others is being injured, then you can't keep overlooking it. It needs to be dealt with. Okay, when I come then to a situation that needs to be resolved, when I find something that rises to those levels of measurement, what steps should I take to find resolution for the wrong that has occurred? What steps should we make when genuine injury or strife occurs so that we can be guided biblically? Now, if you, if you listen to what I say this morning, and you say, you know what? I am willing to put that into practice in my life. I want to give you a warning. It comes from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. I think I referenced this last week. If you engage in the process of reconciliation and restoration, of forgiveness, it is profoundly difficult work. Right, I, I just, my personal conviction as I've looked through this topic is that there's probably not a more difficult issue to deal with in the Christian experience than forgiveness. Okay, it is probably the most demanding of Christian disciplines. And it's why a lot of times we've got stuff festering in our life that is having a a devastating negative consequence because we're not dealing properly with the wrongs that have come into our lives. So if you say, you know what, I'm willing to commit to such a plan, you need to know that it's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of hard work. Last week we touched on the first thought, and that is if you're going to resolve conflict biblically, you need to first be committed to glorifying God, not clearing your own name. Okay, you need to commit, to be committed to the fact that I want God to be glorified in my life, in my church, in my family, in my workplace. I want his name to be honored, and I want to just simply be an instrument that helps that to happen in the context of my life. The key question for all who enter into conflict resolution should not be what will the outcome be all right the key question should be what do I need to do in this situation to honor and exalt my God okay that should be the, the consuming concern how will God, in spite of this conflict or let's say it's stronger through this conflict, how will God be more highly exalted and more clearly seen in my sphere of influence okay that should be the consuming passion that in all things God would be glorified. For that to happen, I want to just give you three steps that emerge out of Matthew chapter 7, 5, and 18. Let's look at Matthew 7, and let's begin reading in verse 1. Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then three through five. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank protruding from your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly To remove the speck from your brother's eye. Powerful passage of Scripture. Okay, the first thought that I need to work through, the first step that I need to work through, if I'm going to help a brother or sister resolve conflict in their life or resolve a tension between myself and a brother or sister in Christ, first thing I must do is humbly evaluate my own heart. And Jesus here is clearly using something in literature that we call hyperbole. He's using an exaggeration to help us see the nature of our problem, okay? A lot of times we have unresolved issues in our lives and we're out there criticizing or nitpicking at other people who have smaller issues in their lives. The bottom line is this. The person who has a small issue in their life, who is approached by someone who has a big issue in their life, they're just not likely to be helped by that person because they will see that there is an evident or apparent level of hypocrisy in the situation. So if you go to someone and you have huge unresolved issues in your life and you're trying to explain to someone else how they have offended you, that person will be deaf to your correction. Okay, you need to first humbly conduct an evaluation in your own life and in your own heart. In a sense, glorifying God is to call focus to Him. But evaluating my own life is to call focus on myself. Before God, to say, God, are there unresolved issues in my life that need to be cleaned up so that I can effectively help my brothers and sisters in Christ? Humbly evaluate yourself. And then once you begin to look at your own life, you look for those logs in your own life, do these two things. Admit your own faults first. Particularly when you're in the process of of, of seeking a resolution to a conflict with someone when you go to them to address a situation, why don't you be forthcoming about your own issues first? Be honest. Be transparent. And you will find that that will have, su- that will have such a dramatic, positive impact on the person that you are seeking to resolve a conflict or a tension with. Admit your own faults first. If this morning you wrestle with seeing your own sin, can I just share with you a verse that is very simple and very confronted? First John chapter 1 and verse 8. Here's what God says. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, that's one just to sit back and say, okay, did did I just hear what I think I heard? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Folks, you know what the effect of that is on our lives? It should be that it produces a degree of humility So that when we move into this area of resolving conflict, of forgiving wrongs that have been received, there there will be this dramatic humbling effect on our hearts. Because we will always be coming sinner to sinner, not as a self-righteous person to a sinner who is hopelessly in need. No, we will come to them as one who has been helped by the grace of God. Okay, and it will have a humbling effect. Admit and face your own faults first. And then secondly... Take full and personal responsibility for your part in the conflict. This is so helpful. When you're seeking to resolve an issue that has emerged between yourself and a friend, just be willing to take full responsibility for every part that you have done wrong. Okay, just without qualification. Be willing to own all of the issues that you caused. Avoid excuses like... If you weren't so late, I would not have reacted like this, or if you hadn't left your birthday box of candy on the table, okay you know where that goes okay it, we 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 even in our apologies sometimes you know what we say we we, we go ba about yada 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 but okay and we we always have just hiding. I, you know what I want? I want to self-justify. I don't want to just simply cleanly say, when I did this, I was wrong. When I overreacted to what you did that was wrong, when I overreacted, th- that was totally inappropriate. See, I always want to qualify it. Why? Because humility, humble evaluation is a difficult process. But it is one of the great keys to growth in your Christian experience. Because if I'm aware of my sinfulness, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to follow Colossians 3, uh, verse 6, where it says, mortify, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Because as I am honest in situations of conflict, and I resolve them in a biblical way, I'm going to be crying out to God more and saying, God, give me victory by your spirit to overcome the deeds of my flesh. They are evident in every situation in my life. So when we humbly evaluate ourselves, God in his grace will show us areas where there's sin, and then he whispers in our ear the next verse, from 1 John chapter 1, if you confess your sins, Tim, I'm going to be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and that out of pure gratitude and a humbled heart that has evaluated itself. I can go to my wife. I can go to my kids. I can go to a brother or sister in Christ. And with, with an attitude that has been corrected by self-evaluation, By allowing the Spirit of God to interrogate my heart. I can be helpful to my brothers and sisters. And they will more likely be receptive to the words that we have to share with them. So when we come humbly, we're helping our brothers and sisters. Something else that will happen is this. It will minimize premature and improper confrontation. Okay, if I, before I go to that person, I say, you know what, before I go to them and give them my observations and I bring about a, 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 uh, an event of confrontation, if I first evaluate my heart, I'm gonna save myself from a lot of embarrassing situations. Because a lot of times in confrontation or in seeking to reconcile a problem that has emerged, a lot of times facts emerge in the process of confrontation that cause you, the, the one who's trying to reconcile, they cause you to say, oh, I didn't know that. I wasn't aware of that. And what happens? You find that in your confrontation, you were inappropriate. You were premature. Came down too strong because you didn't have all the details. So if I come with a humble attitude, it it, it will just be, it will just make such a difference. So this passage, Jesus says, why don't you first take the plank out of your own eye? You know what he's saying? He's saying just avoid any level or sediment of hypocrisy in your life. Be true and honest as you evaluate your own heart before you go and seek to reconcile with a brother or sister in Christ. I think there's a warning that emerges from this text also, and that is if I don't look at myself, I believe that I will develop a proud and critical spirit. If I don't see my own issues, my own sin issues... And I believe I'm going to develop a spirit that is proud and critical. And if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 7, don't you find it fascinating? The passage that most people out in the world have clearly memorized, right? Doesn't the Bible say you shouldn't judge? Well, it does. It does. But what is it that Jesus is condemning? Because I can go to Matthew chapter 5, I can go to Matthew 18, and clearly show you, and from many other passages of Scripture, show you that God wants us to hold each other accountable for our Christian experience. And when we do that, it's not violating this command because God's word isn't in contradiction. I believe what Jesus is warning against is, against is a censoring kind of spirit, a spirit that is critical, always trying to understand what's going on in the motives of other people's lives. A critical spirit, I believe, is what he's condemning. So make sure you look at yourself so that you don't develop a crowd, a proud and critical spirit. The last part of verse 5, I think, is a fascinating statement. I'll just read it in its fuller context. You hypocrite, first take the plank, the two by four, the telephone pole, whichever word you want to use here, take that out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye, which is fascinating because a lot of times that last part is, is pushed to the side because you know what we're so focused on in the text? We're focused on hypocrisy. Okay, but even even a hypocrite can clearly see an issue in someone's life. Is that not correct? You may have diagnosed the situation properly, but when you come to help them with the speck of sawdust with a two by four protruding from your eye, they don't want to receive help from you. You're scary. That's the kind of picture that it is. But when We've dealt with that problem in our, own, in our own life. What happens? Now you can see clearly. You become a helpful tool of God to go to that person and help them through a process of reconciliation and to find forgiveness and release from their sin. So in this text, the, the very last phrase, I think, is exceedingly powerful. Then you will see clearly, which leads to the next phase. First, uh, humbly evaluate your own life. Second, be loving and truthful in your confrontation. Okay? Okay? The implication is, take care of the issues in your own life. Then you can be a useful instrument in God's hand to help those around you who have needs. Folks, look, we all need each other. We all, from time to time, slip off the boat. We all need help. We need a hand getting back in. We just can't help each other when we can't see clearly. Okay? But once... You've done that work in your heart before God, and you've humbled yourself before the Spirit of God and asked Him to clearly reveal issues in your life, and you've dealt with them. You are now prepared, not proud. Why? Because you've been humbled by the process. You are then the best person to help someone who's struggling. Do you understand? You see, when I do this process of self-evaluation and allow God to interrogate my heart, my heart is humbled because I will find issues that I need to deal with in conflicts. I confess them to God. Then when I move out of that position to help a brother or sister in Christ, I become a very effective servant to them. I make reconciliation a pleasure when I come in humility. I help them to respond properly to God when I come with a more Christ-like rather than condemning attitude. Come to them by being loving and truthful. Turn to Matthew chapter 18 just real quickly if you would. Just ahead a few pages. Matthew 18 and verse 15. Matthew 18 and verse 15. The Word of God says this. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens, and this is powerful, if he listens, you've won your brother, you've won your mate back, you've removed the wall of resentment between you and your child, you've just brought peace in your workplace. Okay, do you see the the ramifications and outcomes? If they listen, you've won your brother. Now, this text goes on into a lengthy discussion about church discipline that sometimes is essential in the process. Okay, but for the sake of our discussion this morning, I I want you to see that if there is a wrong that is done against you, go and show your brother his fault just between the two of you. Now, this loving and truthful confrontation should have two characteristics to it. Okay, the first one is this. This text says that I am to speak to the person or persons who are involved in the situation and to them alone. To them alone. Okay, speak to the persons involved. Here's the warning. Don't talk about the person. Talk to the person or persons. Okay, it is so easy for us to slip in the trap of sharing things that are true for the wrong reason. Okay? And when we do that, God has a word to describe that. When I say something that's true, but I share it with others for the wrong reason, what is it? It's gossip. Okay? Which God has very strong things to say about in the book of Proverbs and throughout the rest of Scripture. And see, what Jesus is doing is giving us a clear and simple strategy for resolving problems before they get out of hand. Our problem is that a lot of times when we're offended, we are so hurt and injured that we spread the hurt and injury. What does God want us to do? He wants us to speak to the person or persons involved. Talk to the person, not about the person. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, the verse that follows the statement, love does not keep a record of wrongs. It goes and deals with them. Following that, it says, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not rejoice in. In what? Wrongdoing. And evil is the King James translation. It, it doesn't find delight in spreading. Does our flesh find delight in spreading things like that? Let's be honest. It does. Do you ever find, do you ever interrogate your own heart and say, why, why is it that sometimes we, 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 we want to know that other stuff? What makes it so attractive? And I don't have an answer to that question. Except that sometimes it it, it may feed our pride. It may, if we know that other people have issues in their lives and I'm not so bad, there's some maybe uh, type of self-justification that's going on. But when you have someone who wrongs you, here's what God says, go to them alone. Speak to the person, and then I think the second thought is, is, is critical. Speak the truth to that person with the right attitude. Speak to the person the truth, but speak the truth to the person with the right attitude. Galatians 6.1 helps us here. It says, if a brother is overtaken in a fault, you that are spiritual, restore that individual with the spirit of meekness so that yourself, you are not tempted. Okay? When I come to someone in humility and seek to help them and to Encourage them in the right way. If I take the, the the words of Ephesians 4 29, speak to others to build them up, speak the truth in love, speak it in a way that edifies your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, and I come to speak the truth in that kind of way. I am serving them. Because by a meek and humble approach, I am I am, in a sense, entreating them rather than condemning, I'm entreating them to deal with the issue so that the The wall can be removed so that the uh, relationship can be restored and so that God can be honored and glorified. Okay? So speak to the person, but speak to the person with the right attitude. Don't exaggerate. Don't inflate. Be accurate. And as you go, pray for discernment. Say, God... Help me to be accurate as I talk to my brother or sister. God, restrain my anger and give me a loving attitude towards my brother and sister, to my child, to my mate, whoever it is. Give me an attitude that seeks to draw them back into a proper relationship with yourself and with me. Okay, and the last thought that comes up, if you go to Matthew 5 and verse 24, Just turning back, same gospel, chapter 5. Verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, and this is midst the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your gift. Okay, this is the final step. Go and get things right. The idea of reconciled is to forgive or to release from debt. Okay, if you're uh, uh, working on reconciling a bank account, and you find that in in one of your bank accounts, you're $20 short, or you paid a bill, and once the uh, cell phone company went through your bill, you know Daryl's company, they go through your bill, and they write you back, and they say, hey, You came up $20 short. You owe us $20. When you send in the check for $20, what are you doing? You're reconciling the shortfall. Okay? You're adding a little bit more, and when you do that, there's a peace between you and the company. They stop harassing you to pay the bill. Okay? Same thing is true in terms of dealing with matters of rights and wrongs amongst believers. When there is an offense that is given, you are to go to your brother, and you are to be reconciled with them. What does it mean? It means to forgive your brother his faults. Now, in this passage and in Matthew 18, you're going to find there's a difference. Okay, in Matthew 5, the person making the offering remembers that their brother has something against them. This person's coming to the temple, they're getting ready to forgive their offering, and they remember that there is a tension in their relationship with, with a brother in Christ, somehow they, the offerer, has offended this person. Okay? In Matthew 18, it's the other way around. If your brother has sinned against you, go to him. Okay? Now, it's it's easier when I am in the case of Matthew 5. It's much easier for me. Uh, <clears throat> if I have wronged someone, it's much easier for me to realize I have a responsibility to go to them and say, you know what, I said this, and I shouldn't have said this, I was wrong. I had this happen to me about two months ago. Had a quick interaction with a pastor friend uh, who I don't see a lot, and someone's name came up, and I said something I shouldn't have said. It came, it was, I got in my car and I was like, where did that come from? And I realized that the next day I had to sit down and write him an email and say, you know what, I should have never said that. Okay? I was responsible for the wrong and i felt that i needed to go and do something about it the other side is a little harder isn't it when someone has injured you you know what it's easy to do it's easier to say you know what they have to come to me all right you, you know what i'm talking about someone wrongs you and your friend says you really should go and get that right and you know what you're saying oh, i no, they wronged me they have to come to me Okay, I'm going to argue for you from Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 that in either case, a Christian has a responsibility to go to his brother or sister in Christ, to go to his wife, go to your husband, go to your children, and make sure you get it right. It doesn't matter who started it. You see, the issue is this. If I let unresolved conflict be buried, it's like toxic waste. Okay, it will breed bitterness and resentment in other areas of our life and begin to pollute and contaminate what God is seeking to do amongst his people. Okay, so whether I'm the one who has been offended or I, or I am the one who is offending, I think this, these passages both make it clear that I have an obligation. I have a God-given responsibility. I hate the second one. When someone wrongs me, I'd rather wait for them to come to me and talk. Well, when they're ready, they can come and talk to me about it. Okay, I, you have a hard time finding that in scripture as an option. Okay, when a situation rises to the level where there is long-term consequences or effects, negative effects in the relationship. Now, in Matthew 5 and verse 24, he says, leave your gifts at the, in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled. Okay, now, now, the idea of first, I think, in this text tells me this. Reconciliation is a priority for Christians. It comes before... Worship. Why? Because I can't truly and and with transparency worship God if I haven't dealt with the wrong that has been received or given. So it's first go and get it right. Then come and exalt God. Give this offering to Him. Okay? Secondly, it is a choice. Okay? Either I will or I won't. Either I'm going to do what God's telling me to do or I'm not going to do it. Either I'm going to take the steps that he wants me to take, or I'm not going to. The verse that comes to my mind, and the fact that this is a choice, is to see how God deals with us. Jeremiah 31 and verse 34. God says, I will forgive their their wickedness and remember their sins no more. What is that? That is God making a choice to give us the forgiveness that we do not deserve. He chooses to not remember them against us. That is, he does not keep a record of my offenses against him. That should deeply encourage our hearts when we come to issues of conflict and trouble. If I'm not at fault, Jesus asked me to resolve it. If I am unsure about the sincerity of the person that I'm dealing with. This is a question that comes up. If I go to someone and they say, yes, okay, I'm sorry, but I'm wondering about the sincerity of their confession. What responsibility do I have? Okay, I think you have to understand what happens when you forgive someone. Forgiveness does not absolve, and I'm quoting from Kendrick here. He says, "When forg- forgiveness does not absolve anyone of blame. It does not clear them with God. Meaning, when I say to someone, okay, I understand what you're saying. I forgive you. Okay? It does not absolve them of blame. It does not clear them with God. What it does is it clears me from having to worry about how I will punish them. Okay, forgiveness is saying, you know what, it's between you and I, this is clear. It's in God's hands now. Okay, God knows the truthfulness of the confession. Okay, so I don't have to panic about whether, were they really sincere when they apologized. Biblically, it doesn't matter. God wants us to deliver that issue over into his hands and trust him with the outcome of my obedience. Okay, so you go to the individual, you speak the truth in love, you forgive them, and you let the results in the hands of God. That is a very difficult step because it takes a high degree of trust. Commitments that will help in forgiving them. This just in conclusion, this thought. Commitments that help in forgiving. And these come from Ken Sando's book on peacemaking. One is this. Make a commitment to not think on this incident. Okay? Make a commitment to not think or to meditate on the incident itself anymore. Follow God's example to the best of your ability. He chooses to remember them no more. And then secondly this thought. Make a commitment to not bring the incident up again and use it against the individual as punishment. Because as Kendrick says, great marriages, relationships, and homes are not created by people who never hurt each other. But by people who choose to keep no records of wrongs okay does that make sense great relationships have conflict but great relationships choose not to keep a record of wrongs that have been received along the way they don't store them in some form of permanent memory <clears throat> read a funny cartoon about three weeks ago in studying on this topic and, and here's what the individual says <clears throat> they said in a counseling session whenever we fight my husband always gets historical Okay, and the counselor in, in, in response says, do you mean hysterical? Okay, do you mean hysterical? And in, in the, in the clip, it's like, no, I mean historical. Whenever something comes up, a new tension, they always want to reach back and bring the old things in. I'm going to tell you something, folks, that is toxic to any relationship. That will destroy any possibility of peace and reconciliation. Okay, God wants us to forgive it, forgive it. And when God forgives it, he forgets it. Now, let me just poke at a quick thought because I know what you're thinking when I say that. Forget about it. You say, Tim, I can't forget. If you knew the nature of what happened to me, you'd understand what I mean when I say I can't forget. Okay? Now, please understand what God is saying in Isaiah 35. He's saying he chooses to remember them against us no more. okay God first off has an infinite capacity he has unlimited capacities so he can literally say you know what I forgot it and I will never think about it again you know what our struggle is we have a hard time doing that don't we Things, they just come back up, depending on the nature of situations. It's just, it's something that will be there. When something, you're watching a movie, and all of a sudden something happens in a movie, and you're like, that oh, just brings up these thoughts. Okay? Wounding and injuries that have been done, broken relationships, and all those kinds of things. <clears throat> what God is saying to us is this. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't store them to dump them on someone's head the next time they fail you. Okay? Because that then what you end up doing is you end up carrying around this barrel of toxic waste in your heart and when you get jostled in life it spills out and it begins to contaminate the rest of your life so that's why god wants us to like him don't remember it against them anymore forgive ephesians 4 32 as god in christ has forgiven you guess what folks i will never be accountable to god for any of my sin past present and future because it was laid on his son jesus christ for my benefit I was uh, looking at my email deleted, deleted items the other day. I have eight thousand one hundred and thirty-some deleted emails. Okay, that's not counting spam. Okay, now that's that's been over probably uh, <clears throat> there's probably five years worth of deleted emails on there. I was shocked when I saw that number. Uh, most of you know that if you delete a file for, from your computer, where does it go? You delete a document or a file from your computer, where does it go? goes into the trash bin, and some, sometimes it's called the recycle bin, right? And you can go back and find the things that you've deleted, right? Because your computer has this memory or ability that, that someone can go in there. If they dig deep enough, they can find everything that's happened on that computer. That's not what God talk, is talking about when he says, I will not remember them anymore. Okay? He's not talking about putting them in the deleted bin or file where it can be retrieved. He's talking about putting them in the incinerator where they are consumed. And gone forever. And folks, that's what Jesus Christ did for you. He didn't didn't say, okay, I'll delete it, put it in this file with a permanent record. And that's the idea of 1 Corinthians 13.5. There is no permanent record. When our sin is forgiven, it is blotted from the record. And in in, in, Psalm 103, he says that as far as the east is from the west, so far he, he has removed our sins from us. Infinitely apart from us. The record and the consequence that goes with it is permanently gone. Now, folks, when we talk about forgiveness, here's what we say. We say that the forgiveness that God gives us in Christ, that causes it to be permanently removed in the incinerator, we say that that forgiveness comes to us for free. Right? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness that we receive from all of our past, present, and future wrongs is eliminated permanently by the blood of Christ. And it is eliminated freely because it happens by grace. Right? That's what we say. And theologically, that is absolutely correct. But if we ever begin to think, that our sin and its remission is free, and you're going to say, "Well, you're contradicting yourself." Okay, <laughs> if I'm going to say that my forgiveness is free, that is without cost, then I misunderstand the nature of the gospel. You see, forgiveness comes to us free, but I incurred a debt before God—a debt that had to be paid. Romans. 3, or Romans 6 says, The wages of sin is death. That is the justice of God. All sin must be paid for. The wage for sin, the payment for sin, is death. I have not died for my sin, but by the grace of God I am forgiven. Everyone who knows Christ personally by grace through faith is forgiven freely, but not without cost. And when you understand the distinction between those two things, it will change how you approach people that offend you and wrong you. Because in Ephesians four, Paul says, "Forgive each other just like God in Christ forgave you." When I'm sharing the gospel with someone that I'm meeting for the first time, I'll often take them out to uh, take them out to lunch, and I I have a habit when I'm sharing the gospel with people, so I I sneak up and I pay. I said, well, I have to go use the restroom. And I, and I go do this, to be honest. But I, I go and I pay their bill. Okay? now I sit down with them, and if we've been talking about the gospel. I'm going to say, now, look, you have a choice right now. You can leave this restaurant right now. Don't go to the cash register. You can just leave. Because I'm going to tell you something. When you ate your lunch or your dinner, you incurred a debt. I took care of that debt. I paid for that. And if you believe me, you can walk out of here. If you don't believe me, here's what you're likely to do. You're likely to go to the cash register and try to pay your own bill because you don't believe. Okay? You and I walk out of the restaurant of life having eaten of God's grace. We walk out free. It doesn't mean the meal came without expense. Our forgiveness comes to us free because the blood of Christ was shed to pay the price for our sin. And I'll just leave you with this passage from 2 Corinthians 5. I'll just read this for you. Or 1 Corinthians 5. Okay, it is 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Let's listen to what this text says. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, now listen, who reconciled us to himself. That same word that's used in Matthew 18. He reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Okay, so God brings Tim Hof to himself in Christ, not counting Tim's sins against him. He could, it's my debt. But he takes the debt of my sin and lays it on his son. And because he laid it on Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ bore the consequence for my sin, I no longer owe. Do you see? The glory of forgiveness is understanding the good news of the gospel. When I understand that Christ has fully paid my sin in full, that I am forgiven because of the work of another, it will change my life. It will change my relationships. And it will cause me to say, you know what? When I deal with conflict, I'm going to follow God's pattern. Once I have followed God's pattern, what should I do? I have to leave the results of that encounter to God all I can be responsible for is my obedience to God's directive so that when there is a conflict, I go and I make sure I've done my part. Romans twelve eighteen. If it is possible, be at peace with all men. Okay, go fulfill your God-given responsibility in that relationship. And then, you know, as a Christian, here's what I have to do. I have to leave the results with God. I may walk away from a situation saying, you know what, that did not go as I was hoping it would go. didn't go like I was hoping it would go. What do I do? I have to leave the results with God. Especially as with someone who's outside of the body of Christ. Not a brother or sister in Christ. I need to leave the results of that encounter with God. This morning I realized that some of you may be living with unresolved conflict. And on the inside it has been tearing you up. It's been killing joy in your life. Just have two simple questions for you. Would you be willing to look at the God-given pattern for resolving conflict resolution and to do it for the glory of God? Would you be willing to do that? And ask yourself this question, who do I need to go to to get rid of the toxic waste that is buried in my heart that is leaking into my life? Who do I need to go to? It doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old. This stuff is deadly to your spiritual life and joy. And God wants you, by the grace of Christ, to first look at your forgiveness and then say, okay, God, I understand that Christ paid the price for me. I believe that he has forgiven me completely from my sin. I don't deserve that. Thank you for paying the price for me. Thank you for not holding my record of sins against me, but instead you put it on Christ and you've forgiven me. Now help me to move into my sphere of influence, into my relationships, to forgive like Christ has forgiven me. Would you ask God this morning to do that work in your heart so that you can be free and so that in our families, in our church, in our church family, in your workplaces, there can be a measurable difference because we've begun to follow the command of 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not keep a record of wrongs received. It knows they come, but it refuses to keep a permanent file of grievances. Let's pray this morning.